I've had so many great guests on the Inner Circle podcasts, and it's always great to go back and revisit some of the best interviews. One is with Don Roser, better known as Buck Dharma, lead guitarist and one of the founders of the band Blue Oyster Cult. This is an interview done for Podcast 227 back in 2018. Buck wrote and did the lead vocals on the band's best-known hits, including Don't Fear the Reaper, Godzilla, and Burning for You. During the interview, we talked about the early days of the band when it was known as Soft White Underbelly, his best studio experiences, the evolution of his home studio, and much more. I originally spoke with Buck via Skype from his home in New York. I really want to go back and talk to you about some of the contrasts in your career, especially like when you first started. So can you tell me like some of the gigs that you guys did as Soft White Underbelly? The band that eventually became Blue Oyster Cult. Sure, um, you know the the uh, the gestation of the underbelly was in uh, Stony Brook, basically around Stony Brook University. None of us attended Stony Brook, but uh, that's where uh, Sandy Perlman had graduated. Sandy being our our uh, mentor, manager, and uh, lyricist for in the beginning, and it was meeting sandy that sort of convinced me to to give uh, professional music a try i don't you know i don't think i really would have had a plan otherwise but uh, that's the way it started and uh we survived we bought our peanut butter and and, and jelly and bread in the early days by playing uh gigs at stony brook with dances at stony brook and we did that because um, Sandy's friend, Howie Klein, would hire us for these appearances. We also opened up some of the concerts there. And, of course, Howie Klein later went on to uh, start 415 Records and then uh, become the head of Sire and uh, retiring a, uh, a wealthy fellow. Yeah, yeah, right. Later. But at that time, he was, you know, he was the head of the, the whatever the... Uh, they called the social board that had you know, controlled the budget and the hiring of uh, entertainment acts. So anyway, we you know we he'd throw us like a two hundred fifty dollar gig every every month or so and or six weeks or so, and we survived on that basically. Were you playing like clubs and things like that? No, we didn't really play clubs until uh, we basically failed the software underbelly, and we needed to play clubs just to survive. And then we did spend about a year and a half between the underbelly and uh, and the uh, eventual evolution into Blue Oyster Cult playing. We did play club dates and we played a lot of copy material. And it, that had the benefit of sort of honing the band's uh, performance skills a little bit too, you know. Yeah, I remember those days where there were plenty of clubs to play. And of course, that's where you got good back in those days it was the farm team, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, well, we were sort of good as a as a as a psychedelic band, you know, and and, and a, you know whatever you would call what the underbelly was, but I couldn't say that we were polished in a in a uh, you know aggressive or commercial or entertainment sense, you know. But the uh, obviously the early days of the underbelly and the, the music that was recorded. I don't know. Have you ever heard that music? I don't think so. It was um, those. We were signed to Electra as the underbelly, and we did about almost two albums worth of stuff. And during that time, the original singer, Les Bronstein, departed, and Eric Blome replaced him. 
And so there's some recordings with Les on vocals and there's recordings with Eric on vocals. Wow. And we thought that, uh, that they had just been, well, the problem was, is that, uh, Electra had a falling out with Sandy and, uh, just decided to, um, you know, eat the expense that they had in ours and not release the music. So we thought that the, they were gone because Electra went through a couple of mergers and sales and who knows what happened all right. But anyway, it uh, turns out they still have the tapes and Rhino put them out, and I guess, oh, it must have been the early 90s or late 80s, sometime around it. They made about 3,500 copies of it or something. I don't know if it's still available anywhere. I, it might be. Maybe you could stream it. I don't know. What was that like to go back and listen after all these years? Um, it holds up. To my ear, I think it's it's really it's really good stuff, and it's definitely uh, unique. You know, it's we we neither the the voice to Coulter or the underbelly really sounded like anybody else, and uh, certainly at the time of the underbelly was was a a wonderful time of of creative output in the music business. You know, bands were just coming out of every direction, and they all sounded different. They all had a point of view. It was really, really nice. It was a good time to be alive and listening and making music. Well, speaking of creating music, let's talk about writing songs, because there are a few people that are really good right off the bat, but most of us have to learn, and it takes a long time. So what was the evolution of you guys writing? Um... That was a, it was a unique experience for us to begin that. But, um, again, we had some excellent and, and potent, I think, uh, lyrical input from Sandy Perlman and Richard Meltzer. And we very much kind of just pounded out the arrangements in, in rehearsal in those days, this, this preceded uh, multi-track tape recorders being available to the, uh, you know, the, the musician and not just the, the big studio, but even the big studios only had four track in those days. So we would rehearse constantly. We had a band house and we would just basically rehearse all day long and, uh, work out these arrangements and, and, uh, Sandy would listen to it and make suggestions. He was a odd fellow. He passed away last year. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. But he knew so much about music and, and had a feeling for music, although he wasn't particularly musical himself. You know, he could, I don't, I don't know if he could ever sing in tune or, you know, even his, even his rhythm wasn't that good. But boy, he just, as far as the cerebral end of what, what popular music was and, and, uh, you know, and having his finger on the pulse of the, uh, the emerging album scene you know it was it, it was just phenomenally talented and that's how we sort of learned to do it yeah mm -hmm. what was your first experience in the studio like uh my first experience um i didn't have to worry at all about the, the technical end of it you know yeah. you just come in you 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 know you you set up your amplifier and the engineer puts a mic on it and uh and you go you know and uh it was a thrill it was great, you know, and our first experiences, uh, happened because, uh, Sandy was able to get the demo time from several, several labels. We did a demo for Mercury, we did a demo for Columbia early on. We did a demo for Electra before the, uh, 
before we made those, uh, before we were signed. And uh, so we actually got some, some uh, New York City studio experience by doing that. And of course, you start to, you know, you grok and, and, and osmose the uh, creative process and how it's done, the technical end of it, you know. So it was, uh, it's great. I've always loved being in the studio. When you guys first started, was it in the time of 8-track or was it 16-track? Um, no, it was the time of 4-track. Oh, 4-track, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, our first album for, for Columbia, Royce uh, Cult, self-titled, um, that was recorded in a, a jingle studio that was owned by uh, David Lucas and his partner, Tom McFall. Um, Lucas McFall, and they were one of the prominent jingle houses in New York at that time. And we had met David at a, at a party upstate New York and he said, you know, come on down and we'll do something. So, so that first record was recorded as a master purchase when we signed with uh, CBS. After that, we had to record in CBS studios, but the first record was done in David's studio on a Scully A-track and he had the first A-track in New York City. Yeah. Of course, I guess, you know, everybody followed suit pretty yeah. soon, but that was the first, the first, uh, one H track. That was the machine that I learned on a Scully A track and an MCI 416. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first album was A track. And, uh, then I think we went 16 after that. And then of course we went 24 eventually. So you guys, you started in an era, wonderful era where you're used to playing live in the studio. Yeah, we always did basics live. You know, of course yeah. we did overdubs, but uh, we tried to do as many as the instruments on the basics as we could. And is that right up until today? Yeah, I would say we we've played click tracks and not the click tracks, and we've done it every way you could do it, pretty much. Okay, well that leads me to the question that you've done a lot of different ways. You've seen the technology change. You've changed with it when you had to. And you have an overview of this, as I do. What do you feel most comfortable with when it comes to recording? Is there a way that just seems like it works? And that's, is it a way that you think that everybody should work or it just works for you? Yeah, well, if, if you listen to what's popular today, it's, it, it bears almost no resemblance to the way we recorded. Yeah. You know, unless it's an artist that like that, you know, I yeah. mean, there, there are artists that, that are still making music in real time and, and, and you know, on a collaborative basis, but, uh, you know, most of it is here. It's, it sounds like it's all done by a keyboard player, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. You know, and, you know, not to say that it doesn't have merit, but it, it doesn't have a lot of pull for, for me, you know, that's, you, you hear the, uh, occasional real piece of creativity or, or you know, novelty, but the genres of, of popular music today just don't don't really do it for me. Now, that being said, everything goes in a trend, so hopefully that will come back soon, back around. I keep my fingers crossed on that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it seems like the spectrum of what's out there and what's popular, even to to young people today, is really varied, you know? and, and and certainly a lot of a lot of young people like you know roots music real music acoustic music you know, all the traditional stuff that uh, you know was basically the only thing out there when i was coming up yeah yeah right 
You were into home recording early. Well, when, when we first started recording, we had a, we had a Sony stereo machine and we, that's how we would, you know, document what we were up to. Uh huh. And then of course, uh, the, the TX four tracks are the first, uh, accessible multi-track machine that, uh, in our day. Yeah. And that really changed the way we wrote and arranged also. Because the, you know, the writer in, in the, at home could basically flesh out an arrangement with the, with overdubs and then bring a more coherent and closer to finished, um, arrangement to the band before the band ever got all of it. Okay. How did that sit with the band? Because there are some bands that feel, oh, wait a second, when you do that, you're not allowing any of my creativity to seep in. Yeah, it's not, it's not as if the demos were slavishly obeyed because, you know, they would evolve from there, mm -hmm. but, uh, it definitely moved, um, the, the composition into a more, uh, formalized, um, conception, you know, based on the, the author's original conception compared to the old days. And, but we all had the machines and we all did it. So we didn't oh. mind doing it. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. We thought it, we thought having a, you know, a multi-track in your house was just the wonderful, most wonderful thing. Yeah. I didn't have a TAC. I had a decoder. Yeah. Yeah. I had a TAC and uh, the rest of the guys had decoders, although they eventually got TX. Yeah. Yeah. It was a better machine for sure. Yeah. So how did your studio, your home studio evolve then? Uh, I've always had a place to work. I've moved a lot of times in my life and I've, ne I've never had what I would consider to be a, a, a full on release grade studio, except maybe for today. You know, I, I, I'm confident that anything I do in the room I'm in now could, could go out, you know, and, and withstand sonic scrutiny. That's pretty cool that you could say that. Yeah. Well, what I've done, the only thing I've done is, is, is I have a space and I got a professional acoustical consultant to, to design some, you know, materials, which I, um, then procured and put up and it's the room sounds great. You know, it really does. Yeah. That's a big key. Getting the room to sound yeah. good. It's not the gear. Then again, you've had so much experience in the studio already that let's face it. It's not the gear. It's the knowledge behind it. It's not the hammer. It's how you swing it, so to speak. I guess. Yep. I mean, I really enjoy the engineering side, but, but I'm definitely an amateur, you know, I just don't do it. I don't put enough hours in it to be a real expert at it. You know, the pro at the pro audio engineers just work so fast and they, they know what works and what doesn't yeah. where, you know, I'm always experimenting and trying to, you know, come up with something, you know, on my own. Was there one recording experience where you walked away and thought, wow, I really learned a lot from that. Um, I learned a lot working with Martin Birch. Martin Birch, the producer yeah. of uh, Iron Maiden, and he was. Uh, we did two records with him, and he was he was very generous with his with his uh, engineering knowledge, and he taught me a lot about how to just you know it, it, doing what real competent pro AEs do. You know, just get it done. They know how to do it. You know, it's, they like to experiment too, but you know they always know how to get it on tape. You know, so that's good. Was his approach any different from the guys that we worked with in New York? Um, yeah, yeah. 
obviously when we recorded with the, at the CBS studios, the, the staff engineers were totally competent and they, they, again, the, they make records day in and day out for Columbia, but in Martin definitely had a, uh, a, a more rock approach than those guys. It just had more of an attitude. He, he, Martin did the Fireland and Origin record and the Coltosaurus record. Mm. They, they definitely have a sound that's you know different than the rest of our catalog. What did he do exactly? I, you know, I'm very familiar with Martin. I, I love his work, but I've never really heard a lot about him and how he worked. Can you fill me in? Well, he, he's an engineer producer. He does yeah. everything. Yeah. And, um, and he, he basically knows what, you know, what he wants and he's getting it on the way in, you mm-hmm. know, into the machine. And, and that's, that's a, that's a great skill to have. So he's already thinking about how the, his product is and i'm sure you know a lot of a lot of people from that era work that way you know they anybody who puts up a mic or a, and a preamp or a or compressors on the way and they know they know what they're going for you know otherwise you wouldn't do it you wouldn't you wouldn't commit at that point but that's the way it was historically you know you yeah. would commit to to uh Right from right from the recording, like going on, you commit to what what you knew it was going to end up as. I wrote a book with Ken Scott, one of the five Beatle engineers. In doing so, he yeah, he's awesome, Ken Scott. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. is, and, and he told me a, a lot about in writing the book about the Abbey Road culture, the EMI culture. It was funny because they were limited in what they had when we look back, and yet they did so much with it, and it sounded so good. And here we are today yes. with unlimited choices, and often it doesn't sound like that. You know, we can't get close to it. It makes you wonder, like, what are we missing here? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it, it could be the acoustics. You know, the just yeah. the sound of rooms. You know, the yeah, because that's how they they basically corral the music in the old days, right? You know, yeah, they just they, they made a room that sounded good, and they 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 had the best gear they could. And, and the uh, and the rounding of transients from the from the, the mediums and the and the gear was was well uh, was pleasing for the ear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what's in your studio now, gear wise? Um, well, I've got a, a Macintosh based um, DAW, and my my main DAW is Digital Performer. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, I've got. A small amount of outboard gear. I've got some clones of uh, LA two A's, and I got some and some Poltec clones, the new Clark Technic Poltecs. Mm, yeah, got a got a Neve flavored preamp and uh, some some solid state pre's. I I use Metric Halo um, interfaces and mm-hmm. a ULN eight. I know I got some other ones. I got a got one eleven seventy six clone. And I've got a camper for for guitar, which I use mostly now. Even though I've got amplifiers and stuff, it's just I find the camper is really really good for the purpose, and I'm happy with the way it sounds. Are you using it live as well? No, um, it's not that I wouldn't, but I haven't committed to doing that yet. I I still like to have a most of our uh, we do about seventy percent fly dates now when we just go up across the country and play on a rented back line. Mm-hmm. And I, I typically spec 
uh, Marshall JCM 900s, and I use that. But I use that with a uh, a two notes torpedo load box and uh, and uh, uh, impulse response generator. Mm. So 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 my my uh, my cabinet and mic sound is the same every night, and that's what front of house gets, and that's what uh, my in ears get. Wow. Even though I use a even though I use a monitor cabinet on stage too. Yeah. I saw somewhere that the guys from Metallica are touring with, I'm not sure if it's Kempers or Axe Effects, but it made me wonder, it was like, wow, if you guys have given up your, well, they were boogie guys, I, I guess, if you guys have given that up and gone to modelers, wow, <laughs> what does that say about the state of amplification these days? Yeah, well, it's, it's, the stuff's good these days, what can I say? Yeah. And uh, we did a bunch of uh, European festivals, big festivals last year. And I was astounded how many of the metal acts were using either cappers or, or axe effects. Really? The metal guys? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. It's a different world. I have a, a friend that's a exec VP at one of the, the major amplifier companies, and he keeps on regaling me with stories about how the business is getting worse and worse. And even on a small scale, you know, the, the little hundred dollar amplifiers, student amplifiers, we're just getting away from it. It's not, uh, something that guitar players think about these days. Unlike the way it used to be where, you know, that was so much a big part of your sound and you spent so much time like the perfect wave trying to get the perfect amplifier. Right. And, and in the early blue oyster cult days, we used to get, you know, if there's a new new stack amplifier, we we buy it. You know, we had Stramps, we had uh, we had the Boogies, we had the uh, Music Men, we had Marshalls, we had High Watts, we had we tried everything. You know, wow. What was your favorite? Um, the uh, JCM eight hundred was great, although yeah. it was that was before Master Volume or anything like that. Uh, you know, I'm a short guy, and I used to stand in front of a stack and just deafen myself. <laughs> and we, we were opening shows too, so we we'd have about ten feet from the from the lip of the stage back to the you know the next yeah. amp, the next axe gear. So that was rough. You know, <laughs> didn't really think about it at the time, but you know, I like to have those uh, ear ear cells back. You know, <laughs> how's your hearing these days? Yeah, it's uh, I, I've got a I've got a dip at 4K, you know, and I've got uh, uh, you know tinnitus pretty much all the time. But I probably don't hear any worse than anybody else my age. Yeah, I'm lucky like that too. It's not terrible yeah. like other people. Gee, I have a friend yeah. that was an iron worker, and he's far worse than than I am. You know, so it just, right, just goes to show you. How do you find touring now? I mean, you've done it for so long. Yeah. And touring has become a real business now. It's different than the way it was. It was a business then, but you know, now it, it's down to a science almost. So uh, how do you find it these days? Well, you're right. You know, touring is, is mainly the way, you know, the band supports itself. You know, like I could probably survive on, on royalties, but uh, I like to play and uh, the band likes to play and the band is great these days. And, Traveling gets worse and worse, and like we're doing this this model of, of mostly fly dates, and, and we work mostly weekends. We go back and forth, mm -hmm. and ironically, we we net more income now than we did when we were playing arenas. So, yeah. so, but of course, it's 
that's because we had a big production and three buses and three trucks and all that stuff. And they, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, sure. But as far as playing goes, just love it. I'm just, I enjoy it. And I think as long as, as it's good, I could do it indefinitely, you know, but if, if for any reason I'm, I couldn't do it, I couldn't sing or I couldn't play, I'd walk away and you know, bow out. But in the meantime, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's a job, of course, but uh, it's a good job. Yeah. Once upon a time, fly dates is what everybody wanted because it was so much easier. But you know what? Flying is harder than it's ever been, I think. And that takes so much out of you. It's almost better to be in a bus. I think it's more relaxing. Yeah. We we do buses. Like when we were in Europe for 18 days, we did a bus. We're going to go to UK for uh, eight days in February of 2019, and we'll do a bus. But we don't do enough um um you know what do you call a tour you know where it's a, it's all booked in advance we, we do dates where we get good offers and if you have to fly to get there then that's what we do yeah sure sure what's the most fun thing that you do these days in music i i'd like to like to uh just play acoustic guitar and sing that's fun although it's all fun you know i i love playing the, the band's repertoire fortunately boris has got a really deep and varied repertoire of nifty songs. Yeah. I won't get tired of playing the band's music. You know, it's good. And also, we don't play stuff exactly like the record. We never have and we probably never will. There's a lot of improvisation in the way we do it. And uh, that keeps it interesting for us because we have to entertain ourselves. Was that always kind of built into it? Did you know you are going to do that or it just kind of happen? Personally, you know, I've, I've always liked to improvise you know, on, on, on uh, lead, lead breaks and, and not so much the, the arrangements, but certainly the, the uh, solo sections. Mm-hmm. I've always done that, and, and to this day. And, uh, and like a lot, of, uh, a lot of bands that have been doing it a long time, or artists, you know, sometimes you evolve an arrangement, change it, do it on the fly. You play with different people, and it sounds a little different, but it's always coherent as far as the putting the song across you know i don't think the song ever suffers for the changes you know what it's funny because as an audience member i never felt that when i heard the band actually i I, what i'm going to say is as an audience member sometimes there are certain things that i miss from the record when i'll I'll listen to it and Mm -hmm. and it might be a riff it might be it might be uh, like an interesting fill sometimes it's even a bass line you know a a bass fill or something it's like oh god Mm -hmm. i missed that i've never felt that with bluish cult though now that you mention it, when you do vary things, it's like I never felt that I missed something in particular. So whatever you're well, doing, it's true. working. That kind of validates what we're trying to do then, if you feel that way. Because, I mean, there's certain bands that do play just like the record. And, and Boston comes to mind. We do shows at Boston usually a couple of times each, each summer. And they sound just like the record. And... <laughs> Like, you know what you're going to hear, and you hear it. You know, and they do a very nice job of replicating, you know, those classic recordings. But it's, it's really no different. Any night, it's... And I don't think I could, you know, do that. And I, and <laughs> I don't think I would, I would like to do that, put it that way. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, it's funny because I, I think back to my early days, and I'm sure you did this too, when you're playing cover material in clubs, and after a while, you get so bored. It's like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And it, <laughs> I guess it'd be the same thing right. no matter what music you're playing. 
the first time I heard uh, cover bands that actually did like really good covers, I was very impressed. And there's a certain pride and, and talent in doing that. Um, and that was when I went to college in upstate New York, there was several bands up there that really did excellent jobs of, of covering the records and sounding just like them. But beyond that accomplishment, yeah, at some point you, you have to like go your own way and make your own sound and your own music. Now, the only thing I can say for that is if you're sharp and you're really thinking about it while you're playing covers, you're learning a lot about arrangement. You're learning a lot about production. Indeed. If you're not thinking about it, you can just go through the motions and it won't sink in. But if, if you are thinking about it, you know, you, you're pulling it apart and putting it back together again. That's invaluable in, in terms of production experience. So, I mean, that's the cool part of it. Yeah, I would agree. And then there's bands like uh, Captain Beefheart, you know. <laughs> magic bands. Yeah, right. right. I, just, I just watched a clip. I just happened to surf into a clip on YouTube yesterday, and it was just refreshing to you know, hear what they were doing in 1972. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that almost makes me want to go look for a clip like that, as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was it was like a it was the German TV show that uh, it had three songs on it. And the songs are like ten minutes each. <laughs> it was quite hilarious and refreshing to see it. I'd like to see the one where they were on Saturday Night Live, and I think that's the one episode they never show on TV again. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah I, I missed that. Everybody did, I think, unless you saw it when it went down. <laughs> anyway, last question, Don. You've been in the business for a long time and you've gone through the ups and downs of not only the band, but band business. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? Um, I was completely like uh, a total novice with, and, and not very sophisticated about business at any point in my career. I barely know, know how to do anything in the business realm. But uh, certainly, I think we made a lot of mistakes. I, uh, Sandy Perlman was a brilliant uh, uh, strategist in, in terms of some music, but he wasn't a very good businessman. And, uh, you know, I think we made some bad deals along the way. There certainly, I don't know how it is today, but uh, the record companies' contracts are all all favor the stacked in the record company's favor and. You wind up paying for every bit of expense, even though they're giving you the advance to make records, and you know, you're the last person to make a buck. And uh, everyone is just wants to dip into the grosses of, of the earnings of uh, recording artists. So I don't know. I think probably artists coming up today are a lot more savvy about the business than we were. So even though I've been there a long time. Probably not as hip as the uh, the current people that are making big money today. They probably know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, you know, it's the attorneys too. The the new generation of attorneys are a lot hipper than I think everybody was back then. There are a few that knew what they were doing, but I never had one of those guys, <laughs> unfortunately, when I needed them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really complaining. I'm not. I'm not rich, but I'm not starving either. I'll, I'll always be comfortable. So yeah. I, uh, I'm actually count my blessings as far as what's happened in my life and, uh, being able to be, a, a an artist professionally for almost 50 years. It's quite an accomplishment. 
Not many people can say that, that's for sure. At the level you've been doing it at as well, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, I think history has been pretty kind to us as far as our legacy recordings and, and our, you know, reputation. So the fact that we're still good playing, you know, is, is uh, kind of makes it sort of easy for us. What's even better is the reputation continues to grow with time. As compared to other artists where that doesn't happen, I mean, with you guys, I think the esteem grows over time here, which is cool. Yeah, I, I think we were not overpraised at any point. Here, so <laughs> I think there's, there's still room to be appreciated, you know, rather than, you know, everybody's sick of you at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn about all the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.